Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I would say nothing has changed me really in my life except having children. That's the one thing that I can feel has caused a huge psychic shift in who I am. Fame really didn't change me at all. I mean, for a start, I was learning stuff from Peter Cook and I was learning stuff from Tony Allen and whatever, and I'm bringing all this to bear. I remember watching... Nick Hancock and Steve Punt, in fact, host the first smoker I ever saw and thinking, oh my God, they're brilliant. The ball went up the other end, Gaza scored an incredible goal, the sun came out, the DJ at Wembley put the song on anyway, the whole crowd joined in, 87,000 people. We had no idea that it had so been taken to the hearts of the masses. Hello and welcome to How I Found My Voice, a podcast from Intelligence Squared. We go behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shaped a famous figure. And there's something particularly fascinating about comedians finding the confidence to stand up in front of strangers and make them laugh. I'm Samira Ahmed and you can comment on social media with the hashtag IQ2. My guest, David Baddiel, became the first stand-up comedian with his then-comedy partner, Rob Newman, to sell out a major venue, 12,500 people at Wembley Arena back in 1993. He'd come to prominence before then on radio and TV as part of the comedy group The Merry White House Experience and went on to be, I think it's fair to say, at the heart of so-called Cool Britannia, forming the fantasy football show with Frank Skinner. He's also written several books, including for children and autobiographical stage shows such as My Family, Not the Sitcom. Has been a proper pop star, having written the England team anthem Three Lions, scripted his first film The Infidel, and has become in recent years a prominent figure, standing up to anti-Semitic abuse on social media. Thank you for coming on, David. Thank take you. me back. What sort of child were you? Um, I was quite a quiet child I suppose I mean not I wasn't certainly wasn't gregarious someone once said that uh, the funniest person in a class is unlikely to be a comedian in later life it's more likely to be someone sitting at the back you know uh, brooding on this that and the other and channeling it all into something and I certainly wasn't uh, one of the you know obviously like here I am in my school room making everyone else laugh at that point. Um, I was also, I came from a very uh, male family. I think it's quite important. My dad was a big old bloke and I had two brothers and I think I was always quite frightened of my dad. And so that was probably another reason why I wasn't like obviously gregarious and whatever. Um, 
I think I still am. I think it's all my life I've been sort of slightly like I don't like really, really loud, aggressive males. So despite being you didn't mention it there, which I was quite pleased about, uh, often cast as a new lad. I don't. I really don't like sort of you know what you might call sort of stereotypical masculinity. So yeah, I was you know good at school. I did well at school. Um, I when you be a bit modest when you say good, are you really academic? Um, so you went to well, Cambridge. I wasn't. Um, I wasn't like ostensibly swatty. I don't think um, I did really well. Yeah, I went to Cambridge and I got first and all the rest of it. And actually, probably that might bring us to one specific example of how I found my voice, which is for reasons that are now lost in time. I can't even remember why, because I, as I say, I wasn't like notably like funny at school. Um, I got asked to write what at my school which was called Haberdashers, um, and I was there. It was a, it was an independent school, but I was there under a direct grant uh, thing, which um, you may remember. Yeah, we should say. So this is when local um, government would pay the school fees of bright kids who couldn't afford That's right, yeah, fees. and my dad had been made redundant. My dad was made redundant in the early 80s, uh, actually late 70s, and um, so we couldn't afford going there. Um, but, yeah, I got um, a grant to go there, essentially, Um which may be another reason as well why I was quiet because everyone there was richer, you know, and, and better off than I was. Um, anyway, I got asked to co-write the school review. So every year, the kids going to Oxbridge actually because you had to stay on an extra term then to go to Oxbridge. So we were in the what was called six S. The six S review was a school review at lunchtime that was meant to be funny, and it was always not funny. I mean, without fail, it got booed off. It was just rubbish. It was I can't even remember previous ones, but I think they were you know essentially songs about school life that no one thought were funny and I did it and when I did it with a guy called Nick Golson um, we made it very very vicious sketches about particular teachers at the school so for example there was a uh, Christian but I would say pseudo-Christian man I won't give his name because still he might be alive who ran the library at my school and he was horrible and incredibly you know strict and nasty and we had a sketch in which he was having sex with a blow-up doll on the photocopier in the library right and it, it was all like that it was really out there and it stormed it i mean absolutely i still now i think of it as one of the best gigs <laughs> i've ever done and what that made me at school for the first time ever was kind of cool i think i was not particularly noticeable by then to, the only thing I would say is by that time, I'd started to be in bands and I'd become a bit of a punk rocker. And so I was a little bit edgy, I suppose, already without what, comedy. Early, mid-80s? Uh, yeah. Well, I went to Cambridge in uh, 1983, so I guess this is not sort of 1981. Um, and um, so I, that was what made me straightforwardly the moment at which I thought, this is a brilliant feeling, like actually on stage making people laugh. It felt brilliant. And particularly to be engaged. You know what? I've never thought about this before. But I think one particular thing that that was important for me is that I think I am good at tapping into what people of my generation, as my generation shifts, actually sort of think and find is funny and whatever. And I think that, that thing of like, none of these kids want to see sketches about or songs about the school. They want to see the teachers being taken the piss out of. That's what we do in real life. That's what we do. In the same way, I think, was sorry, this is me just ranting now, but when me and Frank wrote Three Lions and I thought, we thought, 
hang on, all these songs about how England are going to win the World Cup. We never win the World Cup. Let's write a song about the awfulness of being an England football fan. In the same way, I think that moment was a sort of little epiphany when I wrote the Success Review, is what do kids actually laugh about? How shit and awful the teachers are. And so that felt to me that being in tune with that audience felt really great. Listening to the way you talk um, about being groomed for the establishment and yet absolutely not being mm. part of it. Um, I was thinking about Peter Cook. Yes. Um, and I gather that your older brother, Ivor, had played you, Peter mm. Cook and Dudley Moore's Derek and Clive sketches yes. when you were about 13. Was yeah. that was that important? That was totally important. I mean, I'd say going back from the 6S review, which happened when I was 17 or whatever, the two most important things in my uh, life uh, as regards catalyzing me into comedy – were, well, first of all, that. So my older brother's very important in general. I, I'm very close to my older brother, Ivor Badil, who is a scriptwriter, comedy scriptwriter, uh, and who is a really funny bloke. The other thing I think that's very important is when I was 13 and 14, I just started meeting lots of blokes my age who I think were really funny, and I could name them now. Pete Smith, who was the drummer in our band, used to make little comedy tapes by himself that I thought were hilarious. And then... I thought, oh, I thought, oh, he's just doing that. But then Ivor played me Derek and Clive, which on a cassette, which was like a sort of turbocharged version of what those blokes had been doing. Which yeah, because you say it's you know famously foul mouth. Yeah, well, it's famously foul mouth. But what I loved about it, and again, it ties in a little bit to what I was saying earlier, and maybe what you were saying about you know um, tapping into something, is that what I loved about it, and still love about it, is the disinhibition. Is that I think that. I'm I'm very obsessed, as you probably know, with truth. I'm sort of like really like madly obsessed with truth and honesty. And there's some deep honesty about Derek and Clive because it's made by two blokes who I think never thought they were going to release it. I think they just thought it would be a laugh to go into the studio a bit pierced and say whatever the first thing that comes into our heads, which in truth in the human animal is normally filthy and obscene and stupid and blah, blah, blah. But people don't do that, obviously, because they want to you know, present a version of themselves to the world that is not that. And the fact they don't do that in any way is what I find brilliant about it. more about your family mm. partly what they made of your interest in the arts mm. um and in comedy even if that didn't become apparent till mm. you were till you were older mm. i mean my parents were both very big figures i mean in my life and in general they were big in my family not the sitcom i think i paint them as they are which is like sort of it in the 70s, um, people didn't really understand parenting as a verb. And my parents were very extreme examples of that. And neither of them stopped their lives in any way. Well, do you want to just us. remind for those who don't know? OK, well, my mum uh, had a long-term affair with a golfing memorabilia salesman <laughs> and then went on to become a very prominent figure in the golfing memorabilia world, which was sort of amazing because we all knew about the affair because she was very keen to tell people about it because she thought it was glamorous. Um, so that was my mum. And my dad... Uh, has just always been an incredibly sweary, really funny, definitely very funny, but very male, somewhat frightening scientist uh, was what he was at the time, although then he got made redundant and, in fact, 
was unemployed for two years and then sold dinky toys, uh, which is what he'd done as a hobby, but he never made any money from selling dinky toys. Uh, but there was a moment, there was a specific moment as regards that, which is that my older brother, again, as I say, an important person for me, um, he had done sciences. He, well, yeah, he'd done sciences, chemistry, physics and maths at A-level, which at the time, I think, I thought, that's a bit weird, he's not very good at science. But I knew why he did it, which is to essentially my dad didn't really leave any room. It wasn't just that we struggled against it. They're just like, no, science is what is important. And any kind of real cerebral work obviously happens in the sciences. And then teachers at my school said to me, no, don't be, I mean, look at your reports. You get Ds and Es for chemistry and physics and maths or whatever, but you get As for his English and history and whatever. So I told my dad that I was going to do uh, English and history and actually did economics as a kind of sop to the sciences for A-level. And my dad said, that's a waste of a brain, um, which, as I say, is not good parenting. Like, you know, I spend all my time with my children who are getting to the same age now, trying to encourage them primarily to do what they want, you know, not what I think is the right thing to do. I want them to feel that they are fulfilled. I mean, I know this is very bland and I'm sure all parents feel that now, but my dad didn't. My dad was like, no, no, it's a waste of time, a waste of a brain to do humanities. Um, so that, yeah, complicated but and difficult. And I was frightened of telling him, but it was the right decision. And your first performance in front of a crowd, where was that? That was Success Review. That would have been the Success Review. That was my first performance in front of a crowd. But then... It wasn't the Jewish Youth Club. Oh. <laughs> well, the other thing that was very... God, it's good research. The other thing that was very important, and I've sort of mentioned it, because when I mentioned those names of people, um, some of them went to Habonim. And Habonim was this Jewish Zionist, I'm going to say it, um, socialist youth movement that I went to. And it was basically just a social club for me. And yeah, they used to do little shows at the end of... We used to go to summer camps and winter camps. And at the end of them, we used to do little shows. And I did do sketches in some of those shows. But I don't think that they were as important, actually, as the Success Review. Okay. When you went to Cambridge then, you, yep. know, you became vice president of the Footlights. Well, that, just, that I was, I was going to say, my next most important performance was uh, I went to Cambridge in the, in the early 80s. Um, Footlights was still just about um, a place of uh, awe in the sense that obviously there had been Python and all those people. And that was sort of why I went to Cambridge because I didn't know how to be a comedian. I really wanted to be a comedian by then because of this experience at school, but I had no idea how to do it. I did go to the comedy store in, I think, like the early 80s. Which was uh, a very exciting time, wasn't it? Well, I was just, I think it it was okay, actually. I had missed the sort of amazing people. So Alexi Sale wasn't on, Ben Elton wasn't on, Rick Mayer wasn't on. Tony Allen was on, I don't know if that's a name that means anything to you, but he was very much considered an important figure in alternative comedy. And it was really amazing, uh, and I, it was de- that was definitely an important thing for me as well. But I think I still thought at that point in time, oh, you know, Python, Peter Cook, yeah. blah, 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 that was where my head was. Um, and then I went to Cambridge with the avowed aim of getting into Footlights, and me and this guy, Nick Golson, same bloke who I wrote the Success Review with, we were in a little double act, And we kept on trying to do these things. They're called smokers, and they're essentially little gigs in the Footlights Club room in front of people who just come, students, and people do sketches. And those sketches go on to be in the big Footlights shows. And I didn't get in for about six goes 
just I would go and people I now know, like Nick Hancock and and Steve Punt and Hugh Dennis, would be auditioning me and saying, no, it's not funny enough. <laughs> and, uh, and then eventually we got in. What I tried to do in Footlights, what I then went on to do, was make Footlights aware of alternative comedy. Um, because the Derek and Clive thing, but then mixed with stuff that I did really start to watch of, you know, the young ones and, and, and stand up at the comedy store or whatever became totally for me what I thought Footlights and comedy obviously should be doing. See, what's really interesting is in both these big experiences, this, the sixth form review you did and Footlights, you're, you're talking about what you wanted to change in them mm. rather than what I thought you would say is what I learnt from them. And mm. I think that's really interesting that mm. you actually had an inner confidence about what was lacking and what you could bring. Yes, although I, don't get me wrong, I learned stuff as well. I mean, for a start, I was learning stuff from Peter Cook and I was learning stuff from Tony Allen and whatever and I'm bringing all this to bear uh, and I learned stuff from Footlights I remember watching Nick Hancock and Steve Punt in fact host the first smoker I ever saw and thinking oh my god they're brilliant what you was know? it that, that you learned from them on that whole experience well I think what I learned from them there is something about performing because I don't think that I particularly thought of myself as like a performer um I think I thought, oh, I'm funny and I can write stuff and I want to go on stage and do it myself. Um, but I didn't, I didn't, you know, like I'm not an actor and never have been. Yeah, you don't do sort of, you know, impersonations. No, I, I, I can't do any voices. That's I can't do any voices because I believe my own ability, inability to lie means that I can't do any voices. I feel uncomfortable yeah. trying to be someone else. And so I thought that, well, it made me think, all oh, right, I need to find a way of doing that and I think maybe that's why I didn't manage to get into a smoker for six occasions because I think it to be able to be yourself on stage is actually quite difficult and I'm good at it and you know that's probably my big performing skill really because I don't have much range as a performer but even well, I can't say I came to it like that because I was too self-conscious and nervous to begin with. Interesting um I was watching the early episodes of the Mary Whitehouse experience on television and I noticed the very first episode of the first series starts with you talking about German unification. Oh, does it? Yes. I wow. think it was partly a coincidence because it was the day. Wow. But I also <laughs> thought, um, knowing that now, um, is that interesting in itself? Um, I don't know. I, I think we'd have to go back a little bit before we go. If we, I know this is only half an hour, but onto Mary Whitehouse experience on telly because what – a very a key thing for me is that I think because I'm from Footlights, I was vice president of Footlights. I kind of get lumped in sometimes, and this is sometimes sounds like special pleading, but it's just the truth that with a, a bunch of incredibly talented people, but who did come out of Footlights and were immediately on TV and immediately famous from the sort of '60s to the early '80s, including Stephen Fry, Hugh Laurie, and all those people. Uh, what actually happened was was that in the mid-80s, Footlights became literally the most unfashionable place in comedy. I mean, literally, you know, you you could Why? just cut... Uh, because of alternative comedy. So, so uh, uh, one of the great early disruptions, of which we now see many more um, in culture, was that when alternative comedy happened in Britain, and, for example, the young ones had that university challenge, which was, you know, scumbag college versus posh college. Cambridge, Footlights or, College Oxbridge. Footlights College Oxbridge, whatever it was, yeah. They were basically saying, you know, even though all those people had kind of got in under the radar, um, that, uh, you know, this is different now. You, you don't get a TV show just by... And so I remember 
when I came out of Footloads, there, A, there being absolutely no TV interest in our show, but also I wanted to be a stand-up and had done stand-up in, in Footloads. I'd done two routines in the May Week show, which is the big show, one about being Jewish and one about <laughs> masturbation. And some would say nothing has changed. Right? <laughs> but I, I, I um, phoned up the comedy store where I'd been going quite a lot by then. So, and they said, have you had any comedy experience at all? I said, yes, I was vice president of the, of the Footlights. They put the phone down. And so I just went on the cabaret circuit. I just went on the cabaret circuit completely without any of that and and was on the cabaret circuit for five years uh, doing London cabaret clubs at a time when they were incredibly rough, yes. um, really incredibly rough. I mean, the first gig I got at the comedy store, which was an open spot, I went on at three o'clock in the morning. And, you know, it was like performing to an audience of completely dead people, I remember. <laughs> and why I carried on doing that, that, that's quite difficult for me now to see because from my position now, I would never do that just in terms of the fear that comes when you're older. You know, in the same way, like, like in my year off, I hitchhiked around Italy. Like, I can't imagine doing that now. How would I think about doing that now? But I don't know. It's to do with youth and whatever. Um, so, yeah, and then and then we got a radio show, uh, which was the Mary White Experience on Radio 1, and then that went to TV. 1993, when you do this gig with Rob yeah. Newman, when, after the Mary White House Experience ends and you kind of go your separate ways as, as sort of couples, if I put it that way, you and Rob Newman... And I remember the fuss about it, that mm. you'd sold out Wembley Arena. Mm. And it seemed to me a lot of older people who ran the news media were kind of annoyed yeah, and yeah. shocked. Furious. Yeah. And there was this phrase was coined about comedy being the new rock and roll. Yeah. How, how did it happen? And how did it change your voice? I mean, just the reality of performing to a room that big. I think Mary White's experience had an element of what I was talking about earlier, which was certainly mine and Rob's stuff, which is of that thing of like suddenly here we are talking about what our generation really is interested in. So partly because alternative comedy at that point was mainly associated with politics. And I, although I've become more of a political analyst later on, I had a thing. I always want to make stuff new, I think, and also make stuff real. And I felt like, well, I'm not that interested in talking about John Major or whatever, even though there was bits of that on my experience. What I am interested in is pop music and football and how I feel about life in general and whatever. And that was what I think touched people about the Mary White's experience. There's jokes about the cure on it. You know, there's jokes about the charlatans on it. And no one had really done a show that was so obviously this is for people who are 25 or 18. And also 20. things like mocking, you know, the, old, the history professors. Yes, yeah. People really beat with affection about that. Yeah. You just start talking like schoolboys, don't yes. they? Yes, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that happened. I mean, I was speaking about that this morning, actually, on Twitter. Someone was asking me. That happened because Rob was <laughs> picked up a habit of saying, that's you, that is, about whatever. <laughs> and I actually had these two old professor characters i think going back to when i was a kid with my mates like pete smith and whatever like where you do these sort of silly old posh historian characters just talking and i said let's try and let's mix those two things and just improvise it um but i would say looking back on it that it's part of the whole thing which is that the key element of history today is it's two very old very mature people talking like children and again it comes back to what i said about peter cook and dudley moore because i believe at heart we are all children we're all winging adulthood at heart we all feel about 12 and you know the whole edifice of respectability and maturity is a lie and that's what why history today is funny um but it was brilliant at the time it was really brilliant i mean me and rob were falling apart was the problem and How? oh because like, this is a story i've told before and i think probably won't suit this podcast just because it's very long and is more about fame and you know how um you know well it from my point of view 
which is what all I can speak of, is I don't think fame has changed me at all. I think I am Moena, my partner, thinks I'm sort of on the spectrum, right? And I don't know if I'm on the spectrum or not, and it's an overused phrase now. But if I am on the spectrum, it is in one particular way, which is I do feel very, very anxious if I move one iota away from myself. And I would say nothing has changed me really in my life except having children. That's the one thing that I can feel has caused a huge psychic shift in who I am. Fame really didn't change me at all. I liked fame and thought it was kind of absurd and brilliant and blah, 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 and exciting, but I didn't feel it changed me. It, I think it did change Rob, who's a different type of person, and we suddenly were having all these arguments about, you know, should it be Badil and Newman or Newman and Badil? Who's going to come on first? You know, oh, I want to go and write all this stuff by myself. I don't want you. I want to be interviewed by myself. And that became untenable in a double act after a while. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You spoke earlier about how you felt uncomfortable with the whole idea of the new lad thing mm. and the 90s. And I must say, one of the things I remember about that decade, um, as someone who's about the same age as you, was you seemed one of the good guys, but you were at the heart of what, what had become quite, mm. what very quickly became quite a frustrating and very mm. sexist yeah. um, world, yeah. particularly in comedy, actually. You know, the all-male panel shows. Maybe, yeah. And I wonder well, I don't know. I would say that went, that goes back earlier. The all-male panel shows. I don't well, know I suppose now they'd put quotation marks around it. So it felt like we were getting it again, but people were claiming it was all... No, no, knowing. all I'm saying is that the, the, the new lad thing probably wasn't responsible in itself for things like all-male panel shows because Footlights have been all-male until 1967 or something. when Eric earlier, Idle, six, earlier, yeah, yeah, but when Jermaine Greer and people like that. Yeah. Started, but do you know what I mean? Comedy for a long time had been all-male uh, or certainly preponderantly male and, and you know still suffers from that a bit but things are properly changing now i don't know that new ladism was responsible for that but it certainly reinforced it and i you know the truth about that i'm going to use the word movement very loosely um is that it really quickly did get like all these things do like punked or whatever uh you know commercialized and and corrupted i mean that's sort of too strong a word by commercialism really so i think you know that when me and rob 
were on the front cover of City Limits. Uh, City Limits being a Time Out like magazine uh, that London was a bit, listings magazine. yeah, a London listing magazine, but that was actually much more kind of politically mm. sort of progressive than Time Out. We were on the front cover of, of that. Rob actually was mimicking doing a page three pose, I think, which is kind of interesting. And this phrase that I'd never heard before was beneath us that here come the new lads. And I think what it was very early on was in a way what I said earlier, which is, does comedy always have to be right on, politically correct? Does it always have to be kind of like, you know, from a very obvious place in the political spectrum, a bit dusty, a bit unsexy or whatever? Why can't it talk about these things? And part of that is, you know, talking about football or talking about whatever it might be, to some extent, talk, and talking about sex and whatever, and in a freer way. And I think at that point, it was quite a good thing. And then what you get later on is, yeah, is just sort of, post-loaded nuts, blah, 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 essentially selling magazine covers with Beery Men and uh, Page Three Girls, and that's shit. I mean, Alexi Sale, who's a friend of mine, uh, but often trying to redefine the history of alternative comedy, said something uh, about three years ago, for which he has since apologised to me about how me and Frank were part of something that took their comedy and made it, he said, misogynistic. And I said, can you show me an example of where me and Frank did something misogynistic. Can you actually show me an example? Um, Really? What was the example? uh, No, he couldn't. Oh, he couldn't, He couldn't. I mean, you know, that might just be because he hadn't combed through everything me and Frank had ever done. Uh, But I I would say I don't think there is, certainly in the comedy, an example of that. We were on the cover of Loaded. We were on the cover of Loaded and there is a model on the cover of Loaded who's scantily clad and whatever. I, I mean, not that this is an excuse. As it happens... I'm doing a thing where I'm covering my genitals in a kind of terrified way, which is supposed to look like someone in a football wall, but I would say is a little bit of subconscious attempt to sort of like be a bit anxious about where I am. I mean, you know, for what it's worth, and this often sounds crap, I've always been a feminist. I mean, always. I just always have. It like, seems to me absurd not to be. Like one of the most ridiculous things in the world is not to be a feminist. Quite obviously, there needs to be all sorts of movements, all sorts of discourses that write the imbalance of power, in, in the, of patriarchal power in our culture. And one of the things I have always, always, always thought is that the idea that women are less funny than men is the most fucking crazy idea ever. I mean, I knew funny women so early on. I mean, I, you, know, uh, you know, my first girlfriend, a woman called Janine Kaufman, was one of the funniest people I ever met. It was just, like, obvious. Like, I wouldn't be with someone if they weren't funny. That was, like, in a way, it was selfish. I kind of thought, like, you can't be with someone if they're not funny. You can't hang out with them if they're not funny. I am heterosexual, so I'm going to be hanging out with a woman for a very long time. So I've got to find a funny one. Actually, that's easy because most of them are funny, you know, in the same way. But you know, you know, like in the way that Justine Frischman gave Damon Albarn a really tough time about Mm. that Benny Hill video they made for Country House with Damien Hirst. Did anyone say anything to you about, did you really want to be on the cover of Loaded? No one did. I mean, you know, I'm not saying it was a good thing to be on the cover of Loaded. And I'm not saying that me covering my genitals with my hands makes it all right. There are things that were wrong at the time. Um, was it but, wrong, do you think? Looking yeah, back? yeah, I think it's wrong. But I would say uh, I would say that the starting point of that, which, as I say, was a sort of overturning, as these things have to be, of a kind of slight primness and dustiness that had gone into comedy by the end of the 80s, I think was a good thing. But that doesn't mean that it, it, went, it went away. I mean, one of the things I think about being famous, and I did do a show about fame, is that, it does mean, and this is, I think, why I have walked, also why I've walked away from various situations. It's because I'm obsessed with being myself. 
what you discover with fame is that suddenly there's another version of you out there in people's minds, in, in expectation or whatever, and straightforwardly in situations you find yourself in that are not of your control and not of your design because suddenly you need to be on a magazine cover to promote this and blah, blah, blah. And absolutely, that doesn't exculpate me. I could have said no. But it's very hard at the time to absolutely dissect every single situation that fame throws up and say, oh, I shouldn't be doing this or I should be doing that. Can we talk a bit about the Three Lions single? Yeah. Um, which you created with Frank Skinner. It's been number one three times. It's still... Oh, four times. Four times. <laughs> Sorry. I love the... It's, it's important. People is... don't know all the fact-checking corrections I've been getting <laughs> yeah, that, that one, we've edited out. That, that, one, one, that one I think you should in. keep in, Definitely. partly because uh, when it went to number one very recently, uh, this summer, for the fourth time, last summer, yeah, yeah. Uh, it became the first single ever to go to number one four times by the same artists so i think um do they know it's christmas has gone to number one four times but it's always been a new version of it okay what does that song mean to you given what it seems to mean to so many people um well i I, i'm very proud of the song you know again i think if i was to go on about and this obviously is banging my own drum a little bit but if i was to go on about my ability which i think is to sort of tap into what i'd like to call say maybe the real zeitgeist as opposed to what loads of bogus phenomenons are called all the time by you know the media and now the internet like this is the zeitgeist it would be three lions because no one had written a song uh that made england fans feel like oh this is actually the lived experience of being an an england fan but more importantly we didn't know how much it had tapped into that consciousness we should mention him Brody. No, Ian Brody. Well, no, the Brody, song was the it. music was written by Ian yeah. Brody. The music was written by Ian Brody. Me and Frank wrote the lyrics, and I remember getting the music, which was just literally Ian singing la 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 on an acoustic guitar, and thinking that's brilliant music. But now we have to sit down and, and come up with an idea. And the idea we came up with was, you know, let's write a song about how we're not going to win, and but somehow we believe we are anyway. The sort of magical whatever thinking of being an England fan. Because the Euro 96 tournament was in... I mean, the time it, was it was in England. It was when in we were England, asked so to do it, football it was, was coming home in the sense it was Yes, so football was coming home in the sense that it was England, but obviously it then took on a larger meaning of like maybe... the semis. Yeah, but the first time it happened, and I have spoken about this before, so do excuse me, but maybe since you asked me, I, I will say it again, was... England lost the first game of that tournament. No, they didn't lose it. They drew against Switzerland. And everyone started to feel maybe this is just going to be a washout as ever, this tournament. And then we were playing Scotland. The first half of that game, we weren't playing very well again. The second half, um, basically, Gary McAllister missed a penalty. um, And then the ball went up the other end. Gaza scored an incredible goal. The sun came out. And as they went off the pitch, having won that game, the DJ at Wembley, who is a very important figure in all this, yeah. against the wishes of the FA, because the FA had already said, you're not playing that song at games, it's too partisan, put the song any- on anyway. And here's the key thing in terms of my zeitgeisty point that I was making earlier. The whole crowd joined in, like 87,000 people, none of whom we knew or just knew the lyrics or had taken the song to their hearts at that point in time. They all joined in. They all knew it already. And it was incredible. I mean, the song had been out for a couple of weeks by then, but we had no idea that it had so been taken to the hearts of the masses. And and that's what happened at every game in that tournament and now continues to happen when England play well. That's another weird thing about the three lives. People sometimes say to me, oh, it's like um, 
Slade's Merry Christmas for you, isn't it? And I say no, because Christmas happens every year. Right? England have to play well in a major tournament for three Lions to take off. And that really, I can't rely on that for my pension. Um, I remember coming to interview you on the set of The Infidel, mm. the film yeah, I remember that. about a middle-aged Muslim man played by Omar Jalili who discovers that he was actually born Jewish. What inspired that story? Because it's actually, although it's a comedy, mm. there's a real darkness. The thing I always remember about that film is there's the father that you never see mm. that he tries to meet. Yeah. Um, well, I think, well, I, I hard to know what, what inspired it now. I think uh, it was a conversation with Mawena, who uh, my partner, who I think at the time was starting to really understand, this was 2010, but I would have started to write it about 2007, what you know, Jewishness meant to me, which is something complicated because I'm an atheist. And so... You've said you're a fundamentalist. I am. Well, I've used the phrase fundamentalist atheist, which Frank Skinner hates me using uh, because fundamentalism is a bad thing. But what I mean by that is just I am totally an atheist. I have absolutely no doubt in my mind at all of the non-existence of God. But I am different from all the other, for want of a better word, celebrity atheists like Richard Dawkins or Ricky Gervais or all these people because I am from an ethnic minority. And being from an ethnic minority means that you are culturally totally wrapped up in the identity of what that means. Uh, but I think, so I was trying to understand that about identity. And obviously the, the infidel is about identity as well. But obviously it was also a time when uh, British Muslims were under threat um, and particularly the identity of British Muslims were under threat. And there was a particular thing about the infidel, which was I noticed at the time there was a thing, uh, I mean, it was a good drama, whatever, but it happened at the time. It was a drama on Channel 4 by Peter Kaminsky, I think, in which there was a Muslim brother and sister and one of them... Brits with Brits, a Z. Yes, and one of them was a, a suicide bomber and the other one was working for MI5. And I thought... That's not a very good spectrum, is it, of real life? Okay. <laughs> Most Muslims I know are just ordinary British people. And so I thought that's what I want to do. I want to do uh, – and it's still quite an unusual thing from that point of view for a British film. The key element of, of, of Mahmoud Nazir is that he's British and that he totally feels that he's just an ordinary bloke. And yet religion suddenly comes into his life and upends his idea of who he is. And that's what I wanted to write about. Your Twitter profile, you describe yourself with the word Jew. Yes. Um, and you are significant, like um, public figures like Tracy Ann Oberman, who've made the decision to stand up on Twitter against, you know, really aggressive anti-Semitic abuse. Tell me about that decision. Using well, your voice I remember that I'm way. slightly different, from, I would say, from much as I respect her and Rachel Riley and David Shire, whatever. And I have been, I, A, I've been publicly like identifying myself as a Jew for a long time. I was doing comedy in footlights about being Jewish. And that was, you know, it wasn't a political decision, but it has political effect, which is that British Jews have always been very quiet about it until very recently. Um, there was a, a th- I remember having a conversation once about the headline in the Jewish Chronicle. And someone said the headline in the Jewish Chronicle is always they hate us, meaning the non-Jews. And I said, no, no, no. The headline is they hate us and let's not make a fuss about it. Because unlike American Jews, and I was born in America, which we haven't mentioned, but I was born in New York and I've always felt a little bit American. Unlike American Jews, uh, who are very, very, and certainly have been over the years in comedy, like make the voice of American comedy essentially Jewish. Certainly, at one point that that was the case. British Jews have always been like a bit British about it. Like, let's not really draw attention to ourselves, uh, and it's taken anti-Semitism to to draw that out. I I was talking about being Jewish much earlier. 
And then from 2011, when I wrote an article in The Telegraph about called how anti-Semitism got in the zeitgeist, I've been talking about anti-Semitism on the left and the specific characteristics of it. And I still, to some extent, see what I do on Twitter as sort of about that rather than about specifically Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party. I think there's a very big malaise in progressive politics about anti-Semitism, about how they don't really understand what anti-Semitism is. They certainly don't see how the hierarchies of which ethnic minorities sort of deserve attention get in the way of like you know what anti-semitism is so for example the present thing that's happening now where about jeremy corbyn's forward in that book a lot of those people that you've just mentioned are basically straight straightforwardly saying you see he's an anti-semite for me, sorry, I don't know if this is going to, if anyone understands what I'm talking about. You know, that foreword that he's written for Hobson's Imperialism. Yes, which I don't know when he wrote that, but. Yeah, he wrote the foreword. Yes. Jeremy Corbyn wrote the foreword for a 2011 new edition of Hobson's Imperialism. And Hobson's Imperialism, it turns out I'd never heard of it before, includes many anti Semitic tropes and his work in general. And Corbyn's just very positive about the book. So it's like, you see, he's an anti Semite. And in fact, no, what it shows again is that the left uh, feel that things are more important than the sensibilities of Jews, one of those being the need to be anti-imperialist. And the fact that anti-capitalism as an iconography has always been wrapped up in the idea of the capitalist banker, the globalist, the money, the money classes as depicting those people as Jews, that's not an issue for the hard left. They don't really worry about it. They've only been made to worry about it very, very recently. So for me, it's all about nuance and truth. It's always about truth. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, but that's why I can't go along with. I get a lot, I had a lot of people this morning <laughs> saying to me, "Why can't you just say that Jeremy Corbyn is an anti-Semite?" And I think because he's not. It's not in the front of his head. Certainly, um, it's more complex than that. Because I am obsessed with the truth, but in my opinion, the truth is always complex. You what comes through talking to you, and also I have to say, watching your comedy is you are really you're really good. At humour, and yet I feel I can sense there's something really serious that drives you. Yeah, I think that's true. And actually, <laughs> I'm serious about comedy. You see, that's a very complicated thing that you've said there because I hate the downgrading of comedy. I hate the fact that comedy doesn't win awards, doesn't win Oscars generally. At somehow that it's a lesser art form than serious drama or whatever because comedy is really hard and gen genuinely says more anyway about how life i think than things that are obviously serious having said that i have done recently some quite serious work i well for example i did a documentary and indeed my family also come about my dad's dementia and that's a there's a very serious thing going on in that documentary not just about dementia but about my relationship to my dad and maleness and all the rest of it it's got loads of jokes in it as well. So that's an, I don't see, like, I'm probably going to do a documentary that the BBC have asked me to do about Holocaust denial. Oh, right? I, know, I was going to ask because you've lost a lot of family. Yes. But also, I remember you once told me about that time you went to Auschwitz. What did I tell you about? About it? that guy who came up to you. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a funny story. Well, that's, you see, I told that story on stage. And again, that is happening. Just that remind story. us what okay, happened. Okay, I'll remind you Because it's your joke, not Yes, mine. obviously. It's, well, it's a true story. I mean, I am a storyteller at heart, really. Uh, and I like to tell true stories if they're absurd. And this was in my fame show. And it's a really good example of what that show is really about, which is the sort of absurdity and stupidity of fame, is I was at Auschwitz. I went there, I can't remember when, but I think 2009 or something. Um, on one of those, I went with the Holocaust Educational Trust. And it was incredibly moving. I mean, just absurdly moving. And I really urge anyone to go. But then I was standing at the actual site of one of the um, 
places that the Nazis had tried to burn. It's a, it's a basically a gas chamber they tried to burn. I'm standing at the site, looking over it, having a quiet moment, and a man comes up to me, and I think he's going to say something incredibly moving and powerful about where we are, and then he says, Dave... When's fantasy football coming back? <laughs> I still don't know if I should laugh or not, but no, it's, it's a hilarious. Great story. It's hilarious. It's hilarious. And, it, you know, the fact that he didn't notice the incongruity of it. And I think I answered him as well. I said, oh, I don't know. We've got another, might have another series coming up. Whatever you like. No, I should have said, don't be ridiculous. Why are you saying that here? But um, I don't accept the idea that comedy is not serious. Having said that, you know, when I do serious work, I'm interested in saying serious things. I just don't think. I don't believe that if you suddenly decide to do that involving jokes, that that's a problem. I mean, actually, on Twitter, I had a, you know, I have various weird moments that go viral and involve spats on Twitter. But one of the most interesting ones was a woman called Devorah Baum, who is uh, the wife of the man who directed The Infidel, Josh Opinionese. Um I did a chat with her at JW3. The oh, yeah, Ju- the, the Jewish, Jewish Cultural Centre Jewish Cultural Centre, yeah, about Jewish comedy. And she told this joke, uh, and this is the joke. Uh, she said, a man, a Holocaust survivor, uh, after the war, having survived the Holocaust, dies later on and goes to heaven. And when he gets there, God tells him, God asks him to tell a Holocaust joke. So he does. And God says, that's not funny. And he says, well, I guess you had to be there. And I think that's an incredibly beautiful joke because it demonstrates something about the Holocaust, which is that if you do believe in God, surely nowhere was he so absent as at in Auschwitz. And it's beautiful, it's terrific, but it is also funny. Yeah. And I don't – I mean, in this new culture that we exist in now where people say, oh, you can't make light of this, you can't make light of that, making light of something is not necessarily not being serious about it. Thank you. David Badil, thank you so much for coming on. How thank you, Samira. This podcast was made by Intelligence Squared. The producer was Farah Jasset. 